What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the latest episode of Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your Nuclear Barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with Hugo Kruger, and we are going to talk about what is going on with South Africa's grid. What's up, man? Hi, Emmett. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, we've had some technical difficulties. On, I think I think it was basically like 1-1 in terms of who missed which call. So I'm glad that this finally came together. Uh, and that we could coordinate our schedules well, because I'm, I've been fascinated about this topic, A, since I started to see the headlines about what was going on in South Africa, and B, once I started to see the warnings in America about what grid fragilization was starting to look like. And so I think trying to wrap our heads around this dynamic as it's already unfolding somewhere, should be a big warning sign to anyone else in the world about what happens when your grid starts to get fragile. But before we dive into that, uh, tell me about yourself. Who are you? What's your background? How did you come to all this? Sure. So I studied civil engineering originally, which is mainly construction-based. Um, my grandfather was a material scientist, and he developed uh, fly ash technology in South Africa. For those who don't know, when you burn coal, the ash, if you pulverize it, it's called fly ash. If you don't pulverize, it's called clinker ash. Clinker ash you can use to make cement bricks, and the fly ash you can use to add into cement to extend cement. So I grew up sort of in semi in the coal industry, understanding it quite well, understanding that uh, when it comes to coal, uh, it's not just you know electricity that's often mistaken. There's all supply chain attached to it, all value chain attached to the coal industry. Mm -hmm. Anything from dynamite is related to it to to other applications. Even sometimes uh, South Africa, in particular, we make our fuel from it. So yeah, I studied civil engineering, sort of uh, with the goal in mind to study materials. Then I worked for a cement company, a French company by the name of Lafarge, for about two years in South Africa on flyage and on uh, cement and coal. And then at the time, uh, because it was a French company, I started learning French language. And then our lecturer told us that there's a scholarship for those who want to study a master's in France. And I applied and I couldn't get into the uh, material science uh, university at the time because the enrollment closed. But I got the scholarship before the enrollment. It was a weird thing. And then I just applied randomly for a nuclear degree in nuclear energy. So it's civil nuclear engineering is my master's, mm. which uh, I found very useful. Because it's actually how to build power plants. Nobody, a lot of people mm. know how to uh, study nuclear physics, but they don't necessarily study, um, you know, how do you mobilize your supply chains? How do you put the concrete and cement together? How do you make it structurally sound against earthquakes, against aircraft crashes, things of that sort? So I studied all of that. So I know how to build a nuclear power plant and how to design it. Then I worked on the design of Hinkley Point C in the UK. So I've been in France since 2015. I've worked at ITER, the International Thermal Nuclear Reactor. I've designed one of the concrete structures over there. I worked in a multidisciplinary team with a, in consortium with, a, with Ansaldo Nuclear, who was an Italian company. Hmm. And then um, the last three, almost four years now, I've been in the oil and gas industry because I they offered a better salary at the time. And I thought, let me see what they look at. So I've worked with something related to coal. I've worked in nuclear and now in oil and gas. And it won't surprise you that even the oil and gas industry is into renewables. Um, mm -hmm. They uh, was again with an Italian company and I'm with now, which I won't disclose. But I've worked in offshore wind as well. I haven't mm -hmm. worked in soda. So I've been all over the energy sector and I try to get a sense of what the uh, is going on there. And what concerns me greatly is that there's a big deviation between what the politicians and the activists are saying and what the engineers know we can deliver, mm. particularly when it comes to building it, which is my expertise. And people totally underestimate the lead times of all of these projects. And I think it's like a computer. You're just going to type in a code and switch it on and you're going to change the whole <laughs> grid overnight. It, it doesn't work that way in practice. 
And then partially, I have a Substack, and I do um, I do YouTube interviews as well, smaller channel, which is my name. They can suck at Hugo Kruger. And um, at Substack.com, I, I write, you know, sort of like you do, but it's, it's much smaller, just about energy, electricity, and other topics, geopolitics as well. My wife's also Iranian, so I've researched the Iranian nuclear issue, which was interesting. Um, yeah, so it's been all over. My writing's all over, but with some focus That's on great. energy and what I do. Yeah. So just so the audience knows, you can find Hugo's stuff in the show notes. If you want, definitely subscribe to his Substack. Um, I read a great piece he wrote on what's up with the oil and gas fields in Russia. I thought it was very eye-opening. There's lots of other stuff there to dig into. Um, and like he said, they're brief, so it's which is great. I could take a few cues uh, from him on that. Uh, so uh, let's talk about South Africa. Mm. What... Give us a little bit of history here. Was the grid always this way? When did it start going bad and, and how? No, um, so South Africa has a nationalized utility called ESCOM. It started in, it's about the 1930s. The director at the time was a man by the name of Hendrik van der Beel. He studied in the United States and he was an electrical engineer and he worked for General Electric. And he was inspired by the New Deal, which obviously was expanding during the Depression. Here. South Africa also had a depression at the time and he was invited uh, by invitation uh, by the Prime Minister of South Africa who was then Field Marshal Jan Smuts, the only man to ever sign the, um, the, the, the Treaty of Versailles and the Treaty of Berlin. Okay, He was the only person to sign the end of the First and Second World War. He invited uh, Indrik van der Beel, who was sort of one of our star physicists, to come back to South Africa to implement the industrialization plan of South Africa. Now, South Africa historically has never had water. Uh, we have lots of mining activities. Um, we're the 25th driest country in the world. So you have to sort of picture all of these things, but we have lots of coal. We don't need any of oil and gas. And anyway, the, the idea was to industrialize the country around the mines. Um, so ESCOM, the nationalized utility, um, at the time uh, became a nationalization project out of a few private companies that was already running the mining electricity, but they were not significant at the time. Then it expanded sort of based on the US co-op system. Um, Generally speaking, it was not taken into account this was the last century when we had the apartheid regime, which tended to favor the white population. Um, and the way the apartheid government worked is it had um, homelands all over the country. These were like comparable to U.S. reserves for the, for the natives. Okay? And um, generally speaking, the white cities had electricity planned for them first, and also they planned out towards the, the homeland areas. Uh, the quality wasn't always the same, and they didn't have full electrification at the time. Okay. So now we fast forward to, say, Nelson Mandela coming in. South Africa, first of all, in during apartheid years, they sort of just, well, they expanded with coal. We basically expand our coal mining fields. But 60s, 70s, and 1980s in particular, we built a lot of coal power stations, okay, because it's all we had. And we had one uh, nuclear power station, Kubek. We also have a few pumped hydro schemes, things of that sort. Um, but by and large, I think today it's still 80 something at 80, 90% of the country's coal. We have the highest coal usage per capita in the world. It's higher than China's and Japan's. Okay. Wow. So, so it's it's a coal country. And we have so much coal that we can convert our coal to petrol, to, to gas for cars. And about one third of all the um, gasoline in South Africa comes from uh, coal, to pet, coal to oil. So we had high quality coal in the past. The quality has diminished a little bit and that has reduced the efficiencies of our power stations, but um, we had so much coal, didn't really matter at the time. So 1994 comes, Nelson Mandela becomes president, and Nelson Mandela at the time makes a promise that everyone in South Africa will have a house and electricity. Okay. At that time, um, yes, there was already black people who had electricity, but the majority of them still couldn't. So within 
almost two decades, South Africa has a program of mass electrification. Um, but here comes a few issues that we have, structural issues with this thing. 1998, the government publishes, a, a, um, so take into account during the apartheid years, we had the cheapest electricity in the country. South Africa was also sanctioned. And because it was sanctioned, um, it wanted to keep the economy going like Iran is doing. And I know the Iranian sanctions story well because of my wife's. And what did they what did they do? They built a lot of power stations. So we actually built excess capacity in the 80s. Okay, you wouldn't say that today. So when 1990s comes, because we had excess capacity, we had the cheapest electricity in the world. Okay, because of coal, because we just had these coal stations that were basically standing empty, and we actually mothballed a few of them, dry, sort of dry mothballed that you can open up later on. But now 1998 comes, and the government says, well, we're going to move South Africa towards an approach of privatization, similar to what the U.S. has. So the idea was we're going to deregulate the market because we have a national monopoly and we're going to bring the private industry in. But here's the problem. The government comes with a, a regulator called the, new, the uh, National Energy Regulator of South Africa, NURSA, and they come with a weird, uh, um, they call it privatization, but it was a communist minister that implemented it. So I don't think he understood it. It was really from the South African Communist Party. <laughs> and and he, he said, well, we're going to have a tariff because he's very scared that the private sector is going to exploit people with high tariffs. Okay. So the idea was the National Energy Regulator Board would fit price fix. They would have a special tariff for the mines because we're still subsidizing mining industry. And then a consumer has a certain tariff, et cetera. And if you actually look at it today, the mines has gotten a free range in South Africa. Um, because we were technically subsidizing the mining industry at the cost of the consumer. But now here comes the catch. The government in 1998 um, tells ESCOM, we're going to privatize. ESCOM gets the instruction, well, they are not allowed to build more power stations because the government says the market will do it. But the problem is this, there's a tariff. And the tariff is so low, it's artificially low. The private sector says, and there's no way we can make money for that low tariff. So mm. now you're exiting apartheid. And all the black population comes onto the grid. The XCOM is instructed to expand grid capacity at a low tariff while they can't add capacity. So what's going to happen? You increase demand without increasing supply. You lead to shortages. Mm. And that is more or less the story of how do we got into the problem. At the same time, you're forcing XCOM to sell at lower than cost recovery to, um, uh, 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 to, to its consumers, and particularly yeah. to the mines. So what does that do? It explodes the debt. Okay. Then on top of it, the government makes another idiotic, I mean, this is a cascading series of idiotic policies. They make another <laughs> policy where they, they say that um, the municipalities are short of cash. We have, I can't remember now, something like four or 500 municipalities in the country, they're short of cash and they need to use electricity to raise revenue. So they're going to be a middleman. ESCOM supplies through the municipality to the consumer. The municipality has some part of the supply chain. Okay, it depends on the type. And then the idea is the municipality is going to collect the money and then they get a tax off that and they're going to pay the tax over to ESCO. But what happens in practice? The municipalities just steal the money. Okay, they use it for other things, okay? which is not surprising. Yeah, I would imagine so. That was, that <laughs> was, that was about to say, like, well, you've okay. got a middleman, they're going to get their cut. Yeah, so you're basically enforcing a middleman by law. So we have this completely insane policy of a national utility where we put it on, the, on a regulatory framework that basically destroyed it, that destroyed what was in my view, one of the best performing coal fleets in the world. In fact, at the time, we were training Taiwanese and um, Japanese people in South Africa on running coal. So wow. we were pioneers in some of the coal technology. And um, you refuse for, what's it, 10, 20-something years to not build any power stations. 2008 comes, so you have 1998, now you're 2008. The CEO of the company is a man by the name of Jacob Arroja, and he says, guys, this is getting ridiculous. We're going to have rolling blackouts if we don't build power stations now. 
And he goes to the government, he says, we need to build it. Look at the supply and demand. The things are tied up. You're going to have it next year, which we did have eventually. Government says to him, Mr. Marocha, uh, you're not allowed to build. Uh, we don't have money. Okay. It's usually. You must use the maintenance money to build new power stations. Okay. So what happened with the two power stations? Now it's almost 10, I mean, 15 years since they fired the planning and the civil engineering office. So they can't, they don't know how to build it anymore. At that time, we could have gone to the Japanese and the South Koreans and said, just build us a plant and you just put it up, right? You're the expert. But no, we were arrogant. We said, we still can do it. Mm. Okay. And so that exploded the costs of those two plants with the maintenance budget. Okay. Man. What happens to the plants that are working? Yeah. They don't have the budget to draw from. Yeah. They don't, they can't get maintained. So you're seeing efficiencies falling. And then until two years ago, uh, no private company was allowed to add its own generation capacity. The government has now finally backed down on that. So we're getting solar wind and probably gas coming on the grid. So slowly we are climbing out of the crisis they created, but they destroyed the national utility. And this is wow. so sad. They put it through regulation into a death spiral. And a consequence of that's going to be a lot of communities are going to get hurt because these assets are so underperforming. And unless the government bails them out and fixes it, but I don't think we've got money because we have the fiscal cliff as well. So I was about to say, I know that you, I know that South Africa's in some financial trouble as well, and they just don't have the, yeah, they don't have the war chest. Yeah, you know? we don't have any of that. So uh, that's the suite of it. Is that, uh, I mean, these are policies that amount to systemic sabotage that I can compare to what Boris Johnson, uh, Boris Yeltsin imposed on, um, what's it on Russia in the 1990s? Remember, he had his dodgy Will Clinton advisors, but we didn't have dodgy advisors. We did it to ourselves. Okay. And it's just, yeah. it's just insane policies and the best engineer in the world, I'm sorry, could not save a utility under those conditions. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't think they were thinking. No, I don't think they were at all. I mean, I, so on my, um, the newsletter that I run grid brief, Travis Fisher just, uh, published an op-ed with us where he asks, are America's power markets be going to become a clearinghouse for subsidies for wind and solar, right? Because the idea, the aspiration is that our markets, the way in which we try to quote unquote deregulate, are supposed to rely on clear price signals for resource allocation. But if you distort the price signal, yeah. then you distort resource allocation. And it's like really like that axiomatic, like that's how that's going to happen. You know, so it's not the exact same problem, but it basically is on a similar theme. Yeah, well, we had some of that because our government was also um, a bit on the green bug for the last five to mm. 10 years. And they say they're going to have IPPs, independent power providers, but it was nothing of the sort. It was sort of like a subcontracting. And the deal was they can get money when they're producing. When they're not producing, somebody else has to pay off the slack. So even when yeah. the prices go negative, um, who pays for the grid access and the integration of those things, the containment, containment. And systematically, they're destroying the coal fleet. So yeah. we have like five to six uh, gigawatt of solar in the, in the day. And the idea is we actually are forced to switch off the coal fleet when that works. Why? It's like, a, it's like you're driving a car that doesn't go all the time and you're forced to take that whenever it goes, you know. And uh, <laughs> we, we, it's just insane policies. You know, I'm all for solar, actually. I think South Africa is one of the few countries where you can justify it because our winter and our summer peaks are the same. But mm. then they must trade on a proper market, okay? We, so we have right. It would, it would have to be a playing field that actually makes sense for the technology and its relationship to the rest of the grid, is what you're saying. Yeah, it 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 it, it has to be that. Also, we can import natural gas. We have lots of gas reserves, but uh, until recently, we were not allowed to untap it. Government has changed. I must say, in the last three years, they've woken up. Not because they wanted to, to because they were forced to, 
it's I think South Africa is now where India was in the late nineties or late eighties. Mm. You know, India it was the party of Gandhi, the communist uh, socialist party that put implemented reforms, not the one who took over because they were forced into it. And we're at the point now where our government is basically implementing major reforms in the electricity markets and all the markets actually. Uh, where I'm actually quite optimistic of us getting out of this, but the 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 sad part is that our coal fleet has been made a victim of of these things. Now people are saying it's coal being expensive, but this is not coal. What I've explained to you now is is got yeah, nothing no. to do yeah. with with coal reserves. It's got to do with policy. Just, and unfortunately, if I look at the US, I don't know where these policies are going because it's so difficult to understand the US system. But eventually, if you if you, <laughs> if, you t- if you tinkle in the market with electricity, you inevitably are going to introduce pain to somebody. You know, and mm-hmm. it's usually the poorest people that have to cut with the slack. Because what if these green stuff doesn't work in the US? I'm seeing offshore wind in the UK just hitting LCOA, levelized cost. Okay, this is their argument that are enormously high. So who's oh, going to pay here. for that? It's about as much as Diablo Canyon now, with like a quarter of the capacity factors or half the capacity factor or something. Yeah, and 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 we're seeing it in Europe as well. We're seeing NIMBY attitude. Germany's um, expansion of onshore wind has been in the climb for the last five to six years. Yeah. So you, you, I'm seeing all these signs in particular wind. So in terms of renewables, I'm optimistic about solar, but not as optimistic as the proponents, okay? Because you, mm-hmm. you can use solar for the summer peak and, and there's a time where they really are affordable. But wind, I regard offshore wind as the most subsidized electricity in history. It's far yeah. more subsidized than nuclear has ever been. And yet they criticize nuclear. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's always their thing, right? Is that it? I was saying with oil and gas too in, in America, like everybody likes to pretend that our gas generation fleet, it just gets these lavish subsidies. Um, but it's nothing compared to what wind and solar receive in perpetuity now because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So tell me about what getting out of this looks like for South Africa. You've talked about some of the reforms, but I feel like there's a little bit more of a story there and you guys are just at the beginning of that journey. Yeah. So what's the game plan look like to you to fix this scenario? So if I can have my magic wand, which mm. I don't have at the moment because the government's still resistant on some reforms. I would move away from selling electricity as a commodity and towards a service completely. Mm. Okay, so if you're always on, you pay for it. Um, service, uh, the, the company should be offering you energy efficient uh, solutions if they want to. They should be able to structure it like cell phone contracts. Mm. So you would pay, say, $1,000 a year, whatever you pay, and then X kilowatt hour. And if you go over that, it's got a different sliding scale. So they should come up with the pricing structure. We still have this idea where we have a regulator that can determine the price. So they haven't gotten rid of the price fixing thing at the moment. Mm. But fortunately, the price is systematically climbing up because the regulators realize that they have to be cost reflective. Right? Yeah. So you'll have to, if we stick with the regulator, which I would, if I can get a real magic wand, I just fire the regulator. I think they totally, uh, it's, it's the worst thing ever. But you know, in the world I have to operate on, I would let the regulator allow the companies to argue for cost reflective tariffs. Um, if that is not going to happen, what's going to happen? The solar guys are coming in cheaper than the regulator during the daytime, and they can't control solar to your home. How, how can you regulate that? It's very mm. difficult. So, and the other thing that is now happening, which is very good, because people have expanded solar and gas um, in private generation, the municipalities are losing their income. So the municipality being the middleman is now completely politically unviable. And that's a great thing. Now, ESCOM, the utility, if it just wants to save itself, can sell directly to its customers. Uh, we had the same issue with our water being it. So they still can't do it. So there's a lot of these stupid regulations that have to be worked mm. out of the system for us to climb out of it. Um, the other thing is we've this week ended load shedding blackouts. Um, 
temporarily. I mean, I don't know if it's going yeah. to go in forever. Fingers crossed, but, fingers crossed. Uh, and, and that's actually been because the call stations have been maintained. Mm. But now the big issue is who's going to take the debt of the utility? Somebody has to pay for it. And that we don't know. It has to come from taxpayers or bailouts or something. Um, or do you just still, I mean, we do you inflate the currency? We don't know. Or does the government systematically allow it to be capitalized? But clearly the utility is shedding money because the higher it puts its rates, the quicker people go off grid, mm-hmm. right? And it does own supply. The other thing that, that needs to be part of this debate is we still have vertically integrated utility in South Africa. Um, the US, you've deregulated, you've split between transmission and distribution and supply, right? Um, if we're going to go that route, what is, who pays for that restructuring? Um, how do you make the transmission lines cost reflective? And then we have the added issue of this is where the government has policies to expand solar and wind. Yet our biggest capacity for solar is in the Karoo Desert, which is 3,000 kilometers from the population center. And the biggest wind is close to Richards Bay, which happens to be where is the best location to import natural gas. Okay. So you have this fight over grid access. And I think in the US, mm. you're facing some of the issues as well. Now, the question is, if we're going to build more transmission lines, who's going to pay for that? Yeah. Okay. That's always the rub. <laughs> That's the fight. And, and at the moment, we might do an IPO on one of the lines, which I think will be a good thing. And then you have somebody own part of it privately. Um, but it doesn't seem that the private sector has the financing sometimes to fund these things. And what the renewable go- oaks want is they want the government to guarantee them, to give them sovereign debt guarantees. So if they go bust, the government bails them out. Okay, so that, that's going to incentivize. For no, real? That's gonna, yeah, for real. That's gonna, they, they force the government to negotiate for that. So you're basically encouraging major risk of investment. Um, so they, they, there's a lot of stuff that has to be fixed with these reforms. But in terms of supply, I think South Africa is, we, we're hovering on being in and out. We still have like one or two hours per year next year. So it's not the end of the world. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing we need to do is we need to fix the, ex- the existing coal fleet. So somebody asked this whole thing about cost. That, that whole debate is not being had in South Africa at the moment, and it's elections next year. So we're not going to have it until after the elections, because the politicians are all promising their favorite electricity source. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the substantive conversation isn't an election year conversation, right? Like, because it's a governance <laughs> issue. So it's like, once people are in charge, like, then they're like, okay, now we can talk about what the real deal is, you know? Yeah. Hopefully, yeah, I, if you're lucky, right, then you get that conversation. So. Let me, let me ask you this, like what, so the green lobby here is huge and very, very powerful, like internationally powerful. Um, I'm perhaps, uh, even has some, uh, people in South Africa. There are people from the U S green institutions that end up all over the world. Uh, how powerful is it in South Africa? Does it seem to have the regular, the ideological capture of the elites, like sort of what's the ideological situation in South Africa around energy? Because I've found that to be annoyingly determinant on what happens. Yeah. So it's it's interesting you say that because um, South Africa, everything's a racial issue at the end of it, and it reflects in racial polls and disparities. Mm. Our countries so, seem to have this in common. Yeah. Um, no, we, we, we have a similar history of the US. Yeah, so if you, no, definitely. If you look at polls... Um, all the other racial groups are overwhelmingly in favor of nuclear power, for example, okay? except the white population is split between English and Afrikaans speakers. And the Afrikaans mm. speakers tend to be in favor of that. And there's history because when we developed nuclear, it tended to have been at Afrikaans universities. So mm. you find that weird disparity in, in ideology. But in, to answer your question on these um, renewable lobbyists, 
Um, they put a lot of money into South Africa, and there was a time when they could pressure the government and push them around. But we now have a Minister of Energy that's really um, stuck a finger to them. And it seems even the Minister of Environmental Affairs have now said, we're going to exploit natural gas and we're going to exploit uh, oil. So the government is, is mm. somewhat pushing back against it, but half-heartedly. I mean, I was actually in a meeting today with our COPE representatives, and the minister said to the one activist, look, exploiting oil is not illegal in South Africa. And if you want it to be legal, you can vote for that law. Okay. It's basically, <laughs> basically a way of saying go to hell. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so some of the politicians have put their foot down. The largest opposition party, the DA in the Western Cape province, they tend to be bought and sought on this green stuff. Okay. Um, so it's, it's, it's disparities for where you go. And that makes it a little bit better because we have a variety of elites in the country. We're not like the U.S. that's more homogenous in your thinking. Um, I mean, U.S. has two more or less elites, but in Europe, they all bought and sold on the same stuff, right? Um, in South oh, Africa, yeah. You, you the first opposite. time I went to Europe, I talked to somebody from Brussels and I was like, this is like talking to an NPC about energy. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in France, we're a little bit better because there's some nuclear, but they're even nuclear and, and green, right? Um, in the UK, they, the conservatives are, are sometimes the most extreme in this stuff. But in South Africa, we have opposing elites and we have mm -hmm. universities that oppose. And it, it just happens to be in racial disparities, which is sometimes annoying. But for example, the University of Johannesburg the, uh, last year um, in the economics department published a PhD theses that said the best and cheapest and affordable source of South Africa is coal and nuclear for yep. this and this, this reason. Okay. Um, so you have some of that coming into the policies. I'm optimistic that we're going to work it out of the system. We'll have some of this stuff. I mean, as I said, I'm not against some green stuff, but it can be annoying the way it's so dogmatically presented. Um, but I must say the government, when I personally engage them, so um, are quite open to to listening to alternative views at the moment. So, for example, well, I, was part of a, I was part of a lobby group arguing for nuclear when the government came up with a policy opposing nuclear. And we pointed out that, listen, your nuclear data is based on basically U.S. data. You're saying every power station costs the same as Voktel, which is just ridiculous, right? Yeah. And the government listened, actually. And it seems that now they're saying, well, nuclear is back on the table. We might even amend the government position on nuclear a bit. And we might even send in a request for information to build one or two power plants next year. Okay. So the, 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 that's not a full victory for you know somebody like me that can be saying this, make the whole country nuclear. But that's a small victory and the government's somewhat open to it. So in terms of these things, it's not that clear cut, but the environmentalists sometimes win fights as well, you know, and so you win sure. some, you lose some there, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's politics. So let me ask you this. I think the first time we ever talked, uh, I asked you some questions about what's going on with South Africa and LNG. I mean, the world, I mean, the future to me seems to belong to natural gas, like the, in the medium term. Like we see Qatar inking deals that in Europe and China that it blow past the 2050 net zero window by like a decade, you know, all of this stuff, uh, which I'm fine with, uh, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, America's cutting similar deals um, with other countries and other businesses. Where is South Africa in that? Do you guys have import capacity, export capacity? Like what's going on? Tell me a little bit about that for you. Yeah. So let me answer you about looking at the, the U.S. and the Russian problems. The problem, one problem Russia has is that its gas is in Yamal, which is far away from Moscow and St. Petersburg. Okay? So they have to transport it over long distances before they can sell it. So there's no market next to it that makes the risk investment for Russia. That's mm -hmm. why Russia might you know, um, lose gas, uh, gas markets to Europe. Where if you look at the U.S., uh, what you guys did very well was you exported gas in Texas and Pennsylvania, which is next mm -hmm. to the market. Right? So short distance and then you can have lots of entrepreneurs and the guys that are close to the gas understand it. So it's applied where it's exploited. So 
Now in South Africa, we have, bring it to us, we have the seventh largest gas deposit in the world, it's estimated, in the Karoo Desert. So it's, it's a massive gas deposit, but it's in the middle of nowhere. That's mm. the problem. So we don't have the infrastructure there. Also, South Africa is isolated from the world sea lanes. We are around the Cape of Good Hope. There's not a lot of economic activity in, in our neighbors, Mozambique or Namibia. Namibia's got a million people. It's a big country. Oh, yeah. It's like three times the size of Germany with a million people. There's nobody there, practically. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a domestic market to justify LNG ships going there. The only place in South Africa that makes sense is Richards Bay, which is the harbor that exports coal. Mm. And the coal interest historically has been blocking natural gas imports over there. See, I can see that happening. Yeah, I can see that happening. Okay, so now I've written an article where I've argued that, that if we're going to go for natural gas, we need to first import before export. And import makes complete sense to me because worldwide in the gas markets, there's like 40 countries last time I checked competing for imports and exports. So it's so mm -hmm. affordable. If you're going to export your export your product yourself and then try and sell it, you're competing with other countries like the US and you just have this bigger market to get our S-curve down for a small domestic market. Our population is not that big. So that's been the, the stuff. It's, it's the government not understanding it and the coal industry locally blocking the import of natural gas. So the way you would get natural gas going in South Africa is you put in Richards Bay, there's aluminum smelters, there's a little bit of industry there, and you would put gas ships on barrages. And the government has actually ordered these gas ships, but it seems that they paid bribes for the government and now it's tied up with legislation. So <laughs> we, we don't know if that's going to scale. But if natural gas scales in South Africa from Richards Bay, we have pipelines all the way to Gauteng, which is the economic heartland because we develop mm. from the inwards to the coast. We don't have coastal development like you do. And then that can scale to the rest of Africa. Um, and it will be either pipeline or it will be overland. But it, it will take time to scale it. So I'm in favor of, of importing first. Others are arguing for exporting, but we, there's been no private investor that wants to export, that wants to exploit in South Africa yet because of this isolation. And no, and I also, I also think it's just not a good time. So yeah, like you said, there's a lot of other co countries to compete against. And so I was reading Javier Blas's latest op-ed uh, op in Bloomberg, and he pointed out, he said, look, if everybody's going to get into the LNG export game, he's like, in a very short amount of time, we're going to have a prolonged buyer's market. Yeah. And you I know. think we're there already. Yeah, I think, I th yeah, if we're not there already. And I think for developing gas export in a place that's inconvenient, that would need a lot of upfront capital risk, you're walking into a market that is not hospitable yeah. to help you break even on that. Exactly. And, and you know, we are a water-scarce country as well. So we have this issue about groundwater pollution and stuff. I know it's exaggerated, but I mean, environmentalists can be happy by importing as opposed to exporting. Yeah, right. So, right. so, so, so I, I'm not in favor of, of doing it ourselves yet. I mean, in the future, if it makes sense, we have had coal to gas conversion in the past, but it's obviously expensive. So we do supply, do have some domestic gas. But it's, it's not the, you know, major LNG. And also, a few friends of mine have pointed this out who are from abroad who have now stay in South Africa. South Africa is geographically isolated. And mm -hmm. sometimes we isolate from the technology. We just don't understand the stuff. So we're like, we've been with coal for a long time. Why should we change anything? Coal works. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of that mindset going on as well. So you, you need to break a little bit of that. And the people can be scared of new technology. So we're still scared of natural gas. No, totally. I mean, I think one thing that I've learned in all the histories, uh, history I've been reading in like uh, early 20th century America and 19th century America is that there is always just as much optimism as there is fear about major technological developments. And it's easy, I think, cavalier to say, well, the people who are afraid just uh, are just pessimistic or whatever, when it's really like, 
they don't understand and they don't it they don't have the like empirical conditions to no. make any sort of decision and they're defending what already works you see this is why when it comes to energy i'm always in favor of countries using their own resources because they sort mm. of understand it okay which it's i know from a economist would say just import export okay on gas i'm arguing for importing but it's this issue that you face we, we're saying well we have this call around us we grew up with the call we know the call very well mm-hmm. But is this thing coming from Qatar? Where is Qatar? You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what does that mean, right? Yeah. Like that's why, like in 1973. So uh, Anas Alhaji has really convinced me that the uh, New Deal era price controls really created the shortages in America. That the OPEC 73 embargo was sort of the symbol of, right? Whether or not that was actually the cause of them. And so many articles that come out after that, especially from the incipient green movement, are about how now we're dependent on this foreign thing and we have to totally realter our domestic politics to right. account for that. Not, of course, get necessarily get rid of the price controls or whatever. They weren't arguing for that, but like to do something even more radical. And I think that is exactly the type of situation that could unfold in fluctuations in the LNG market for a society that is not used to that at all. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, look, I, I would say natural gas has a major business case in Africa because like we like not like the US where, first of all, we don't have a lot of rivers. So we're like your Western states, which mm-hmm. is sem- semi-dry, semi-arid, and uh, we are a logistics economy. Mm-hmm. So to put uh, a trucks on was it the liquefied gas, you know, makes complete sense to me. Long distance gas for transportation, for domestic cooking. We... We can get people off the uh, electrical grid. We still heat our homes with oil heaters. You know, so there's a lot of applications for gas in South Africa. And I would wish somebody would exploit that market. But at the moment, the interest has been blocking it. There is some import facilities they're now talking about at Richards Bay. Mm. It always takes three years from the point of corrective action. And the, the documentation has been lying and the feasibility study has been lying in the Department of Energy stable for years. And mm. every few years, I do another one. I come to a similar conclusion that I've done and others have done. And we're trying to say to them, okay, move ahead with this thing. But then mm-hmm. the politics come in, the elections come in, and they just block the thing. Um, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a domestic failure not to import it because if gas would scale in South Africa, um, and, and there are signs of it scaling now because ESCOM is finally moving from burning diesel to gas um, as a safety mm. of supply, then I don't think the blackouts will continue because gas just scales so quickly. You know. Yeah, it does. It moves really quickly. So. You said people are moving off grid or can move off grid in South Africa. And I have some questions about that. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Are we talking about industrial consumers or just households or both or or what? It's both. So, I mean, I say off grid. So I would say they move towards their own supply. So they have a solar panel on the roof type of thing. or they have behind the meter. Yeah, yeah, yeah mine and be the next to the transmission line. Because when yeah. you talk about real off-grid in the middle of nowhere, that's expensive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's basically what's happening is they're all putting solar. And they say our solar and winter, our winter and summer sunshine is very similar. So you have predictable mm-hmm. solar behavior. Okay. So our uh, um, energy uh, grid, our demand curve is, is skewed towards domestic consumption uh, for that reason. Um, then also, you, so it's basically companies expanding solar and then they tend to have diesel as a backup generator. And some of them are now finally looking at replacing the diesel of gas generators, so small generators. Mining companies are, do, are leading the way, actually, with some of these things. And the mines have got massive, massive capital, and we're still mining economy. So that has reduced the demand curve a lot for ESCOM. And, uh, you know, as I said, the negative is the utility death spiral that's occurring. 
Um, mm. But yeah, so it's slowly but surely, people are, are looking for optimal solutions. I don't think there's really big, from big companies are truly off-grid people. Um, it's just somebody optimizing their supply curve, you know. Mm-hmm. But in some cases or days, they still have to rely on a national utility for supply. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that here. You know, there's a lot of like off-grid behind the yeah. meter. You know, often that means a, a diesel generator that the state environmental agency doesn't recognize as admission uh, emissions. You know, <laughs> so. there's also another um, thing that is that's occurring now because of these regulations being passed in, in a good way. Is the municipalities are now allowed to source their own generation from sources? Historically, they were not allowed to. Mm. So the local governments can do it. And now some of the governments like Cape Town, I think Pretoria is also going to do this, is they're going to allow people to sell peer-to-peer through the grid. So we're going to have peer-to-peer oh. contracting. Yeah, that yeah. So you're going to have, um, yeah, so you're going to have like co-generating facilities and stuff like that. Yeah. How it will work in practice, I'm not so sure. They, they also say wheeling and things of that sort. And they're talking mm-hmm. about these schemes now. So it remains to be seen, but there is innovation happening in electricity trading at the moment. And so we're basically starting from a nationalized utility, a vertically integrated, almost Soviet-type utility, to something mm-hmm. that's going to be free market. And that started about two to three years ago. So it's, it's all optimistic in, in many ways. Um, I would personally like to see us build one or two more nuclear stations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we have the money at the moment, but we can finance it through export credit agencies, and they tend to get good returns in Africa because the interest rates we use loan for us, our returns are higher. And uh, we also have a young population and all these you know, factors for economic growth. So if mm. we can get over the electricity hurdle and over the water shortage hurdle, desalination is also going to scale probably. I do think South Africa will have some good economic growth in the next you know, decade. Um, I'm optimistic. I mean, I that. hope so. That would be fantastic. I, I have a question about, um, about nuclear. So uh, would you guys be building like a design you have that's yours already? Like I'm very ignorant about what nuclear you have. Or would you be working on a deal with either China or Rosatom or like Westinghouse or I don't know what the Koreans are up to to help you build or what's going so on there? What we built in the 1980 was a French reactor. It's okay. actually US design, but you know, the French reactors are sure. US designs. Um, and that was financed through, I think, France's National Bank, if I'm not mistaken. And that's generally what the deal would be structured like. So it's an export, it's a vendor financing system. Mm. One of the major five, maybe I think even Canada is now exporting six, maybe seven if India's exporting players will basically tender and they come and build it for us. Okay. With okay. some local, local contract management as well. But South Africa had the world's first ever SMR, which was the pebble weight modular reactor, X-Energy in the U.S., you look at all the team, the South Africans, it was our design that they took over. No way. I had oh, no yes. idea. That's awesome. Yeah. So we had the first ever one in the 1990s. And then in 2008, the government made a political change. And then the government came in. The first thing they did is they canceled the reactor. Why? A political, political lobbying from other energy groups, basically. Oh, gosh. Okay. And then all that team went over in the US and they basically founded X Energy. So X Energy is founded, is founded by a South African entrepreneur in the US. And you can look at their entire team. So it's basically that that reactor design. We were the specialists in it. I'm not sure if we still will be. It was a German design originally, just to you know not get take all the credit. And we took it over. We were the first country to try and commercialize it. So mm. had we not cancelled in 2008, it was about five years away. They say, say ten years from building, we would have had one by now. No, oh, dude, that makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah. So that is one. People are still angry about it. So there's a company in South Africa called Strati Global that has got a local um, design ready, a new one. So it's 100 megawatt. But they're looking for financing. And even the government is not, there's all of half committing to them. 
So mm. I just hope the government puts some money down. But again, we'll have to go through all that R&D steps again. I'm not sure what the way we are. And I think maybe for that, even it's best just to tell the guys in the US or China, because China also has a pebble bit, or South Africans advising them how to do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it will be better just to get those guys to, to build one of those reactors and say, okay, you beat us at it. It's our failure. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we can get it going. Because half of South Africa's coal fleet is air-cooled. It's not water-cooled. So it makes sense to run it on helium. Right, because the people better done something. Um, uh, okay, so, yeah, okay. Yeah, gas-cooled reactors. So that that yeah, makes sense yeah. for that, and then for industrial heat and other other applications. So yeah, we we had a relatively smallish nuclear industry that sort of pioneered commercializing SMRs, uh, for you know, and then later we just dropped the ball on it. Just that's why, that's why politics. I mean, it speaks to your earlier point, yeah. You know, but politics get involved in any technology that can destroy it. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to be careful, right? You have to. And you don't want to walk away uh, from the political fight before the thing's done. You know, like that's the, obviously I'm not throwing shade on, on anybody. I am not doing like Monday morning quarterbacking here. Uh, I'm not, I wasn't in those rooms. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like I respect anybody who's uh, tried to make progress on these things. But um, so I have one last question for you and it's something I've been trying to figure out and I think it's been hard for me to figure out because on the face of it, it pisses me off so much that it sort of shuts off my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. is Europe's relationship to South African coal? Because when the energy crisis happened, all I saw, and this is going to be my little rant, is a bunch of people being like, South Africa, you should really shut down your coal plants, blah, blah, blah. By the way, can we buy literally all of your coal to make it through winter? So one third of all the coal going into Europe is South African coal. Get out of here. Okay. I knew it. I knew it, dog. <laughs> okay. the, Germans, the Germans bought it. They're not burning extra in Germany, but they're stockpiling it, which is just weird. So they're saying it's going to fail. Maybe it's a safety of supply. Um, yeah, the Germans and the French gave us money to phase out one coal power station, but then the unions rose up and they said, to hell, this thing is just ridiculous because they were transforming it into a renewable hydrogen plant in the middle of a country that's the 25th driest in the world. We're going to find fresh water. Yeah, okay. what? No, that's crazy. But our government bought this nonsense. I mean, this is politics. So anyway, so the unions rose up. It was Kumati Power Station. And they so the government has now backtracked it and said, we're not going to close any more coal stations. We're going to just extend them. That's mm. before the elections. I don't know what happens next year. But they got, <laughs> <laughs> they, got, they got money from COPE and they're now going again to the World Bank to get a loan. And this is the problem with this climate stuff is that countries who are developing Okay, our politicians are as corrupt as anywhere else. They are going to use this issue to try and extract as much loot from the richer countries for your guilt for polluting. And yeah. then when that money runs out, they'd be like, oh, but we have no choice but to use coal or diesel or whatever. Yeah, yeah, of course. Dude, that's, it's all, it's, it's, a it's all this weird like guilt game. There's, it's a lot of like, uh, I mean, I actually kind of have to respect it for certain <laughs> leaders from developing countries where they're just like, Look, if our if the people who turned this into a colony are going to do some stupid deal for some stuff that we're not even going to bother to build, but we can make money off of it, why wouldn't we? Well, the, the lady who approved this phase out of this Kumati station, as I understand it, she worked for Bloomberg Financing. Or she, she's now working for them or something. So she got her, went to the US, got a crazy job over there, and people just left the country with a coal station at the time when we were having blackouts. I mean, I can understand phasing out coal if you, you know, saying, okay, we've got too many of them and maybe we can replace a few of them. Yeah. But when we have blackouts, why do you phase out coal stations? Even if they work at 50%, it's better than nothing, right? 
So yeah, it's that's fifty percent more than zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, so we we have all these kind of stupid policies. I mean, it's no better than than what happens in the U.S. and France. I mean, I know the yeah. French situation quite well, and they. I mean, France, for example, in 2000 and was it 18 or something, when François Hollande was president, maybe before him, they made a commitment to phase out nuclear. And then EDF fired the engineers. I mean, they had to rebuild Flamanville and those things. The cost exploded because they had no more engineers. So you have this stuff in the energy sector all, all the time. I don't know how you can ever get a government or these type of decisions out of the energy sector. I think it's just something you have to live with. And then when the cost rises, they build more sensible policies later. I yeah. think even the US. I think it's you know, fire to fire. Exactly. I think that's yeah. the, yeah, and then you sort of muddle through and it's weird. And then something horrible happens. And then hopefully you have smart people on the wings who can take advantage of that and make a better decision. <laughs> that, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind it's, of like it, a mess for a while. They bump their head into sanity. Um, and I think even the US, it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to happen with that, right? I mean, I, I look at some of the US policies. I'm like, really? You're doing this? And then I realize, oh, but you're still burning gas. Okay, I understand how this is going. Yeah, it's like 40% of our generation or something. I mean, I do a weekly update on power generation in both the monopoly. So one third of the country is still a traditional monopoly. And then two thirds of it are in power markets. And it's just gas all the way. I mean, it's just, it's not even close. It's not even close nationwide. But why are they not replacing some of the gas with nuclear? Is it just too expensive in the US? Or? Yeah. So, I mean, we have the same thing. I think you and I were talking about this maybe at the beginning before we started recording. Um, so I think Brett Kugelmass has made the point really well that, you know, uh, uh, nuclear companies love safety regulations because they can drive up the cost of their product. There are also a lot of utilities who are very gun shy about investing in new nuclear because... Like historically, it has pushed utilities into bankruptcy if it goes wrong. In the power markets, they're not friendly to nuclear. We have a very aggressive regulator on top of that. Like you could, and then the public opinion has not yet aligned towards nuclear. Like our green lobbies are, you know, Michael Bloomberg just kicked in another $500 million to anti-nuclear green groups, and he's already sunk in half a bill, right? So- yeah. So that is part of why it, it's like this. Um, it's like a Chinese finger trap trying to figure out how to get nuclear built in this country. It's going to be very, very difficult. And my, it's, I think my, it's going to take a long time. So my, my estimates for nuclear has been that you need three plants to get on top of the bottom of the S-curve. Yeah. And if you're going to build a third, it's 30, which is you forked or 30 billion. Then the second is 20 and the third is 15, which is what it should cost. And mm-hmm. then, so that's what, 30 plus 15 is 45 plus, you know, um, plus 20. So you have a 55 billion bailout just mm-hmm. to get nuclear ba- back to where it should be. That's before you make profit. So you yeah. can imagine you're running in, into something close to 100 billion if you're really going to build a few s- series of them. And then you hope that a politician won't break it down. So the, the other solution for the U.S., but I don't think you'll do it, is just get the South Koreans to build your own tech for you because they do it quite affordably. Oh, no, I know. I've, I've had conversations with that. I mean, there's some like weird stuff in the way, I'm sure also like some national pride, but I think one place where I do see a little bit of hope is it seems like the Tennessee Valley Authority Mm -hmm. is willing to work on like SMRs and their current um, CEO is very adamantly in favor of nuclear and defends it publicly, which is a huge change um, from like sort of the national public comms posture around nuclear. Like the Atlantic was sort of like, well, you know, you guys don't do enough wind and solar or whatever. And he just took out his phone and he was just like, we are greener than Germany is right now. I don't want to hear it. You know, <laughs> like you can look right here at how bad Germany looks. 
So yeah. well, the the thing of the SMRs has been that you need about the first company to get ten going, which is mm. still far from where you and I'm sitting. Will probably win the race in my view. Um, uh, yeah, I would imagine it's just I, getting I, reps in. Yeah, I, I mean it's. Uh, I mean even large reactors. I mean the French built up to ten reactors a year in the 1980s, which is just an extraordinary rate. I mean you can't you can't even think of that now. So in France, I'm probably going to work on this now. Um, they're going to build six more EPR2s, and I hope the EPR2 is simpler than EPR1. It looks simpler from the design point of view. Um, and then they're going to build Newport, which is a smaller pressure water reactor. But it's interesting with the PWR that the smallest SMR is coming in at about 300 megawatts. I think Nuke scale 77 maybe, but they're even scaling it up. And there's a question of how small you can go in terms of cost. Uh, we don't know yet. And yeah. the gas-cooled reactors theoretically can go smaller. So I, I would just like to have us build a few of these things to see what they actually cost, because nobody knows, you know. They just have no, it's all, we're all just like, guessing. So, you know. well, on that note, I think we can wrap it up. Dude, thanks so much for coming on. This was great. I hope we get a chance to do it again. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thanks for your listeners. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, everybody, remember, go to the show notes, check out Hugo stuff, follow him on Twitter. All the links are there. Um, and... As always, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.